Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation with nationally known gerontologist Carol Zernio and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron. This program provides health, wellness, and other information for caregivers who are vital to the health and well-being of so many people across our country. Now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Thank you so much for joining us today on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron Eisenberg. Carol Zerniel, our co-host on special assignment today. And Tina Smith is filling in for her. Tina is the head of the Caregiver SOS program at the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And Tina, we're doing a little experiment today. We booked a very special guest for back-to-back segments because we think there is so much information involved when you talk about a disability, the types of benefits, how you qualify, and how caregivers can play in that system. So we're going to go with uh, Brooke Burry uh, for two segments, and it should be interesting. Almost oh, definitely. I mean, this is this is a big topic and a complicated one. So the more information, the better. I mean, I imagine you could probably spend hours on on navigating through this system. So we certainly appreciate any information and all the information that you can provide. Well, Brooke, Absolutely, I'm going to do my best for y'all. Well, thank you. I want to give her a little introduction. She describes herself as a passionate and enthusiastic attorney. She loves ponies, who doesn't, black coffee, and really tall trees. She was born and raised in Texas from Missouri County, earned her Juris Doctorate at the University of Houston in 2015. Brooke joined the Packard Law Firm as a Social Security Disability Hearing Attorney in May of 2018, loves her job, enjoys spending time getting to know each of her clients, uh, that she represents. So, Brooke Geary, thank you so much for coming on. And, and tell us, how did you, relatively young person, get so involved in Social Security, which deals with relatively old people? Well, uh, when I first became an attorney, I was uh, in a very small town and a very small community, and I went out on my own. I had uh, done internships through the DA's office in Harris County, did some environmental law stuff. I did a lot of different types of law when I first started out as an intern and as a baby lawyer. I did some family law. I did adoptions. I did probates. And I just really did not find my niche. Uh, and I knew, I knew I wanted to get into a bigger city. I knew I wanted to kind of find something that really fit with more of a service type job as opposed to uh, family law, which is um, basically trench warfare of the legal Uh. community. I I really wanted something that was less aggressive and more felt more like I was helping people, Uh, more of like a social service type of job. And uh, I I applied online uh, to the Packard Law Firm when they were looking for another hearing attorney and expanding their business out quite a bit the year that I started with them. And as soon as I met the Packards and I learned, I did not know anything about Social Security law. I did not know that it was a thing. I didn't know about huh. hearings, didn't know any of the process existed at all until my first interview. And most of my first interview was less them asking me questions and more me asking them questions. Uh, and within about two, three weeks at the firm. I had uh, done several dozens of hours of uh, continued education classes and getting caught up, reading a whole bunch of stuff. I started meeting with clients 
And immediately I just, I fell in love with it. I, I love meeting with my clients. I love talking to them about their issues. I love giving them the opportunity to be able to share their story and say what they want to say and feel heard. So much of the part of the process that I am a part of, which is the hearing process specifically, is so much of that is an opportunity for people who are traditionally disenfranchised to get in front of a judge and be heard and feel heard and feel important and feel like their story matters. And that's that's something that's really rare in the legal world to get to do and to get to be a part of. Um, it, it's definitely a very unique type of law. Well, under federal law, uh, there is money available uh, through the Social Security Administration to help folks who qualify in a variety of ways. But the system is such that if you try to get those benefits on your own, uh, chances are you're not going to be successful. So talk a little bit about what those benefits can be and, and what the disabilities are that may qualify for benefits. So there are two main types of disability uh, that you can apply for and get before you turn the traditional age of 62 or 65 and you move into the traditional Social Security income. Uh, there's two ways to get that through being disabled. That is Title 16 and Title 2. Title II is the kind of disability that we are, most of us are more familiar with. You paid into the system, so you want to get money back out after you paid in. Uh, so it's, they look, the amount of money that you get per month is based on how much you paid in. Uh, there's, it's a sliding scale system, um, and it goes off of the quarters of money that you paid into the system as to which, how much money you're going to get back out of the system. And that, those, that type of claim does have, uh, it's called a date last insured. And what that means is that there is a deadline by which you have to prove to the government that you are disabled in order to be able to win that money back. So for instance, if I have a client who stopped working in 2015, despite the fact that he has a stellar work history and has been working since you know the 80s or the 90s or however long it's been that he's been in the workforce full time, he has until a it really, it's really, it's each one is calculated independently, but generally, generally between uh, one to four years after you stop working, your claim expires. And if you cannot prove with medical evidence in that time period that you have become disabled, you cannot get that money and it's gone. Uh, so the other way that you can get disability benefits is through Title 16. Title II existed first. Uh, that was the first social program that was started. Title 16 was started a little bit later because somebody said, what about people that are disabled that don't have a work history? Uh, we, you know, it's traditionally called the widows and children. Uh, of course, that doesn't, uh, that's not relevant really anymore. Uh, but it is the type of disability that you can get if you are under 18 or if you do not have any work credits to put toward a Title II claim. Those claims do not have any kind of date last insured. They do not expire um, there is a, the amount of money that you get per month is a set amount that changes. It fluctuates with, um, inflammation or inflammation. <laughs> it fluctuates with, uh, inflation. Year to year. inflation. Thank you. I'm sorry. You're welcome. Well, let me, uh, let me stop you for a moment for folks who may have just joined us. Gives me a chance to say you're listening to Brooke Bury. She is a, an attorney does social security disability hearings and a whole lot more. I'm Ron Aaron, Tina Smith filling in for Carol Zernio. And, and Brooke, back to what's available and how you get it. 
So your Title 16 claims, you don't have to have had any work history and you can apply for those anytime and continue to reapply indefinitely, so long as you are financially qualified for those. What that means is that you basically can't have any kind of savings or any kind of assets other than the house you live in. Uh, you have to be financially in a very, very great deal of need to be able to apply for a Title 16 type of disability. So those are the two types of disability that you can apply for under the age uh, for disability and what it means to be found disabled by the American government for our purposes is that you cannot work on a consistent sustained basis without missing more than two or more days per month of work or being off task more than 10% of a work day. Uh, those are the general black and white guidelines for whether or not someone is too disabled to work. There are, there is no one way to become disabled. There's no one diagnosis. Well, I have this, so I am disabled, or I don't have one of those, so I can't be disabled. Uh, most of my cases, a, a very, very large number of my cases, if you get to the hearing process, that is because you don't have one specific thing that's super clear and finite. I do not have insert thing here, you know, to uh, say um, there's certain types of disabilities called listings, where if you meet a medical listing, you are automatically considered disabled, um, cons assuming that you're not working or making over a certain amount of money per month, uh, and you are actually not working and are disabled. If you don't meet or equal one of those listings, which can be very, very difficult to do if you don't have uh, very specific types of medical treatment or you don't have extremely consistent medical treatment, which we see a lot of because it's, it's very difficult, unfortunately, if you don't have insurance and if you don't have Medicaid to get consistent treatment. Uh, it's a bit of a catch-22 at times. They're trying to get on disability to get Medicaid, um, but they don't have it, so they can't get medical treatment, so they don't have the medical treatment to prove that they're disabled. Those are a lot of the cases that we see that come to the hearing level of the process. That is, those are things where we talk about the combination of impairments. Most of my clients have three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, or more different types of things that they're struggling with. Uh, a lot of you see a lot of comorbidities that come together. If I see sleep apnea, I'm usually looking at obesity. I'm usually looking at type 2 diabetes. I'm usually looking at um, you know, high blood pressure, uh, maybe coronary ar artery issues. Uh, all those kind of things in and of themselves may not be enough to find someone disabled. But if you have all of these compounding issues, it can benefit you to have a hearing where you can explain all of these things and show a judge, look, here are all the different situations that I have that I'm struggling with on a daily basis. You know, this is why in combination, I cannot sustain full-time employment. So that's pretty much what we're looking at when we're talking about, are you disabled? We're talking about, can you sustain regular competitive full-time employment with less than two absences per month on a consistent basis and being on task doing your job 90% of the time without a bunch of um, concentration issues, focus issues, not being able to pay attention due to pain, discomfort, distraction for whatever, whatever your symptoms may be with your depression. Now hold that thought, Tina. We're going to, or excuse me, uh, hold that thought, Brooke. We're going to jump to Tina for just a moment and then do a little business at our end. Tina, uh, what I'm hearing describes a lot of caregivers and care recipients 
Definitely, definitely. And, you know, one of the, the challenges, I also used to work at the, the Area Agency on Aging and through our benefits counseling program, we would talk to a lot of people about social security disability and it, it's tough. I mean, there are a lot of uh, I's to dot and T's to cross and just the, it can be very a daunting process to, to do. And like you said, you really can't do it alone. And so that stops a lot of people or they get that initial denial letter and that stops a lot of people. So trying to to get them to understand, you know, you can appeal, there is help out there and not to have to do this on your own is important. It, you know, if, you know, it's, it is a daunting process, but if you have the help, um, you know, that can, that can help navigate, navigate this whole process. And so, you know, don't, don't let, if you think that you might be eligible uh, or your loved one might be eligible, don't be stopped because it's the social security administration and it's just so big and, you know, you, you imagine, you know, a lot of people, they, they go to visit the office site because you have to go instead of call. And then just that's a long line there. So it can be don't let that stop you, I guess, you know, to right. you might be eligible for those benefits. Get the help. Ask questions and get the help that you might need. We'll pick this up with Brooke in just a moment. I'm Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. The WellMed Charitable Foundation would like to remind you it is important to stay connected while social distancing. Caregiver stress may be higher now, and specialists are available to talk with. There's no question that we are living in not normal times, but whether the new normal will be the old normal is yet to be seen. So if you are troubled, if you are feeling stressed, ask for help. Services are provided at no cost. See more at caregiversos.org. Hello. Thank you so much for being with us today on Caregiver SOS on Air. We're talking about a really important topic, and we're going to carry it over to next week as well. So if you don't get your questions answered by our discussion today, odds are you'll get them answered next week. And you can download these podcasts as well and have a chance to listen to them together. We're talking with Brooke Bury. She is an attorney with the Packard Firm, a Special Security Disability Attorney. And we're talking with Tina Smith who is the head of the Caregiver SOS On Air programs at the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And, Brooke, we were talking about uh, folks who are uh, trying to break into the system, uh, trying to figure out what to do and how to do it. We were talking about uh, the numbers of comorbidities, uh, numbers of disabilities people may have. Uh, Pick it up from there. Types of disabilities, uh, comorbidities that we're talking about, I do kind of want to loop back to uh, what Tina was discussing about the dauntingness of this. A lot of the disabilities that people suffer from and a lot of those comorbidities are mental health in nature. Uh, they're things like depression, anxiety, social, uh, social issues, uh, agoraphobia. I see a lot of uh, PTSD victims, a lot of people that are going to just naturally on top of the medical issues that they're having on top of the, you know, the cellulitis or the lip, you know, or the, um, edemas that they're having, the foot pains that they're having, the nausea that they're experiencing, you know, whatever their issues are physically, they also have these these mental health issues that have layered on top over the years of struggling with their physical issues. And that can be 
that can add a layer of complexity and a layer of difficulty for people to get the help that they need. And so that in and of itself, not even counting how complicated the process can be just getting the paperwork done correctly, getting it in and getting a chance to have a hearing if you need to have one, being able to have someone help walk you through that process can be extremely helpful for these people. Um, I do not handle cases in the first two stages. Uh, so what happens when you file for disability is you have an original application and then that is reviewed. There is a small percentage of cases that win on that first application. The second step, they'll get denied and then they have to, you have to a certain period of time to request a reconsideration. That reconsideration is sent back to social security and a doctor or a medical professional will review more medical evidence uh, that they have available that you are able to submit and get everything in by a certain deadline, timeline, all of those things, looking at certain time periods, all of those things. They will review that medical information and make a second determination. A very small number of cases will win at reconsideration. Then we move to the hearing opportunity. That's when I, uh, that's when my step process comes in. And generally what we do is about a month outside of your, before you have your hearing, I will uh, talk with you in one-on-one. -on -one. It used to be in my office, but now we do everything over the phone. Even the hearings are over the phone right now. Uh, so you don't even have to put on pants, get out of your pajamas, nothing. Uh, so what we do when you're preparing for a hearing is we talk to you over the phone. I will spend anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes to over an hour with every client talking with them, just telling them, this is what you can expect on the day of a hearing. These are the questions you're going to be asked. These are the things that we're going to discuss. These are the people that are going to be on the phone. Uh, there is a part of every hearing, if you're over the age of 18 and not a child, uh, where someone called a vocational expert will talk about what you used to do for work, if anything, and then other jobs that are available in the national economy. And they will use a lot of codes and talk. And it sounds like they're just saying a bunch of technical nonsense at you. And it can be very daunting and overwhelming if you don't know what's happening. Uh, it can feel a lot of the time I've had clients describe to me, well, it felt like that person was saying that I wasn't working on purpose and that I should be going out and getting one of those jobs they talked about. And that's not what's happening at all. They're reading off of a script. But if you don't have any of that preparation and you don't know what to anticipate on the day of the hearing, it can have a very severe negative effect on your ability to get what you said out on the table or get what you want said out on the table. Uh, and it can really be beneficial to have an attorney or a non-attorney rep, come with you, uh, have you prepare for these things and discuss all of these issues, review your record with you, talk about what's in your medical records and things that the judge may find in the record. So, you know, here it says that you applied for disability two years ago, but here's a medical record from a year ago that says that you're mowing lawns part-time and your main disabling impairment is that you have lumbar pain. What what is happening here? What is this situation? If the first time the client is approached by that is in a hearing with a judge in their face and they're under oath, they can completely panic. If that's already been discussed with their attorney, oh, well, that was my son, but I was helping him. We set up a little Venmo business or I wanted to mow lawns and I tried and I did it twice and I told my doctor and I guess now he thinks I'm a professional landscaper. Being able to talk about those things 
before you're in front of a judge having to feeling like you're performing um, can be really beneficial. That can really help. And then on the day of the hearing, you can know, for the most part, we have a really good idea, uh, the attorneys, of how each judge does each hearing different. Every judge is unique, but there are a lot of universal truths and a lot of universal things that will occur in a hearing. Uh, but if I have if I have a client that has a certain judge, I can say, this judge is going to ask these questions. And if I have another, you know, if I have another, I have a client that say has, um, they've been using medical marijuana for pain relief, or they've been uh, going over the border to get imaging for x-rays because it's cheaper. Uh, there's a lot of different elements that a client can feel nervous or embarrassed or afraid to talk about. And if they're first approached by those things in a hearing in front of a judge, they can have a lot of anxiety about that experience. Whereas if they're able to discuss that uh, with an attorney or have the attorney ask those questions in the hearing in more of a prepared conversational way, the overall result and the overall feeling that the client has, that they feel they've been heard and they feel they're not being ignored or being uh, marginalized because of anything in their record that they may not have known it was even there. Uh, it can be really beneficial for the client to be able to express those things. Uh, so if you do have, it's not always necessary to have an attorney to apply and get disability. Once you are at the hearing process, it is almost, it, it, I would say in 95% of cases, it is going to be uh, extremely beneficial to have an attorney or a non-attorney rep present with you at a hearing simply because of the level of the, the amount of information that's going to come past you in that hearing and the process itself is extremely daunting when you're on your own. Seems to me more and more people are using medical marijuana, uh, CBD oil, and what have you. Is it now more accepted at the federal level or not? So I can do. I, I love your whole, smile. <laughs> I could do a whole other. We could do ten podcasts on medical marijuana and what I have seen just in the past two and a half years as far as what judges think, what hearings, how hearings go overall. Okay. Let's start. Let's start with why we talk about it in the first place. The reason we talk about alcohol and drug use in hearings at all, if it shows up in the medical record is because of a thing called materiality. Materiality means that if, for instance, let's say that your, um, and I've had this exact situation actually occur. You have a client that has seizures and that is the big, that is their big medical impairment. That is the one thing that they have that would disable them. They have them several times a month. There's even with seizure precautions in place, they would be found disabled. Uh, not every seizure case is like that, but if, if it's a severe enough seizure case, yes, they can be found disabled based on seizures. However, all of the seizures that are were in the medical record were connected to times that this person was testing positive for marijuana in this person's this individual situation the marijuana was medically proven to be triggering these impair this these seizures and their doctors in their medical records were saying you have to stop smoking marijuana yeah. because it's giving you seizures. Um, and that's, you know, that's not everybody. That was a very unique situation. In that case, the client was found disabled by the judge. However, 
there is a part of the law that says if drugs or alcohol are a material issue that are making making either causing or significantly making the condition worse and if that person were to stop using alcohol or an illegal substance they would get better and this or they could get better and this is a medically uh. trackable thing in their record then despite the fact that they're found disabled they will lose they cannot get paid out an instance where this works it kind of in the opposite direction I had a very unfortunate, very sad case about a client who was a habitual drinker in her 20s. And by the time she was 31 years old, she had stopped drinking entirely for two years. She was completely sober. However, the damage that she had caused to her body was so severe that she had gone undergone a, an organ transplant. And she had a lot of complications from that transplant. She had a lot of damage to other internal organs. She had a lot of damage, uh, brain issues, uh, memory issues, speech issues. She had a lot of significant impairments and damage that was traceable back to the alcohol use. All right. However, we're going to stop you right there. We're going to pick this up next week. We'll pick it up with what happened to that client and uh, we'll finish up with all kinds of topics involved in social security disability. We thank you for being here. We thank you for agreeing to join us again next week. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Tina Smith. Brooke Bury is our very special guest, a social security disability attorney, and she will be with us next week as well, right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, an exclusive presentation of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. We welcome emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. Join co-hosts Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron next week for more on caregiving, improving the health and well-being of caregivers and their care recipients everywhere. For more on caregiving and podcasts of our programs, visit caregiversos.org.